All right. Hey, everyone. Hi. Welcome or welcome back to Let's, Let's Get, get Civil. Today, we are so excited to welcome a multi-talented engineer and also a fellow podcast host, Dr. Yvette E. Pearson. She hosts an amazing podcast called Engineering Change and has spoken all around the globe about justice, equity, diversity, and inclusion in engineering. Dr. Pearson, it's so great to have you on the show. Would you like to introduce yourself to our viewers? Thank you so much for having me. It's great to be here. Yes, I do host Engineering Change podcast, as you mentioned. Um, I've been in higher education, mostly in engineering as a faculty member and administrator for over 25 years. And just recently this semester joined the University of Texas at Dallas as Vice President for Diversity, Equity and Inclusion. Well, it's so great to have you on. We'd like to start out with hearing uh, your engineering story. So what brought you not only to this field, but to the work you're doing right now? You know, I really love telling this story because I've, I find that I meet so many people who are a lot like me. I went to college not planning to major in anything related to engineering or STEM. I was planning to major in music and foreign languages. I'd had a horrible experience in mathematics in high school. And quite frankly, my teachers and counselors, no one ever pointed me in the direction of anything related to STEM. It was my mom who said, you know, you should give engineering a try. And if you don't like it, change your major. I think that was some kind of, you know, little backward psychology there because she knew that if I started something, I was going to have to finish it just by the way I'm wired. But I, I'm so glad that I listened to her because she saw potential in me that I, I just did not see in myself, quite frankly. <clears throat> and, you know, when I, when I started going through my engineering program, I did have some struggles, uh, a lot of struggle with self-efficacy because I felt like, okay, do I really belong here? And, and can, I, can I stick this out? And I had amazing faculty members and mentors uh, who stood me up and said, yes, you can. Yes, you do. And of course, the family support. So it was about my sophomore year when I was taking statics and hosting study sessions at the house, I found that, you know what, I can explain this to my classmates in a way that they get it. I mean, you could almost see the light bulbs go off. And that's what that's when it kicked in that, hey, I think I want to do this as a career. And that's when I started really to figure out that I wanted to teach engineering. And from there, you know, when I shaped my career trajectory, it was really focused on making sure other people like me didn't fall through the cracks. So if they didn't have a Geraldine Jackson at home in their corner telling them they could do this or even exposing them to the possibilities, I could help create programs and initiatives to fill in those gaps and to really provide the uh, support, whether it was support through scholarships or different professional development opportunities, engaging with industry and research and so forth to make sure that other events could come along and be successful. So that's pretty much what got me here. Wow, that's really inspiring. And also I think will resonate with a lot of our listeners. So a lot of your work centers around bringing these aspects of diversity, equity, and inclusion into the engineering and the engineering education field. So could you tell us a bit about what these principles are for people who maybe have seen DEI written out somewhere, 
but aren't sure what it means and how engineering fits into this? Absolutely. I like to think of JEDI, Justice, Equity, Diversity, and Inclusion as building blocks. So if you picture a stack of blocks with the bottom block, the foundational block being justice, justice tells us that we are looking to uh, identify and eradicate policies, practices, and systems that create and perpetuate inequities that we experience. The next block up is equity. And equity says we treat everyone with dignity, respect, and fairness. And that's within our profession and within the communities that we serve. Above that block is inclusion. Inclusion says, you know what? It's not enough to just have diverse voices at the table, but we need to value, we need to hear, we need to respect those voices and the input and everything that they're bringing. And then on top of that block is diversity. And when we talk about diversity, we are talking about having representation that is reflective of society. And it gets beyond the traditional dimensions that folks think about in terms of race and ethnicity uh, and gender to also include disability, socioeconomic stat status, LGBTQ identity, uh, veteran status, and so many other dimensions of diversity and intersections of those dimensions. And the way, the reason why I describe them as building blocks is because I believe a lot of diversity efforts have failed in the past because they've only focused on that top block. When you only focus on diversity so that you're checking boxes to say, yeah, we have a woman. Yeah, we have a black person. Okay, we're diverse. You're missing out on what can really sustain the diversity. So you have to have those fundamental building blocks. So if you pull justice out from the bottom, equity and inclusion and diversity can't stand. If you take away equity, you cannot achieve inclusion and diversity. You need all four building blocks. And the way that shows up in engineering, and I'll say especially in civil engineering, we have prime examples all around us. Uh, I'm a disabled person. I have mobility limitations. And I can tell you there are just countless times when something as simple as uh, crossing a traffic intersection is problematic because there are normally signal timers that uh, show you how much time you have to cross the intersection. And thinking about that, if, the, if it's designed with the average able-bodied person in mind, uh, then most people with mobility limitations won't have time to traverse an intersection safely. I mean, that's one very basic example, but one very powerful example. And so it's important for us as engineers to not only represent diverse identities amongst ourselves, but also when we're working to do whatever it is we're doing in the community, we need to focus on designing with and not just for the community. So it's not for us as the engineers to come in and say, we're all knowing, here's your problem, here's our solution to it. It's, we have to have a user-centered approach that goes to the community. First of all, hopefully building relationships before there's a problem, but going to the community and say, you know, ask the questions, what are you experiencing? Let the communities define the problems that, and challenges they're facing, and they should be engaged at every stage of the problem-solving process, including the ideation. Who can tell better what a community needs 
than the community members themselves. Who, who can tell better about how to make something accessible than someone who needs accessibility? And so, um, so we see it in different areas of engineering and computing as well. But that's just one example I think everybody can relate to. Yeah, I think so often you hear like the phrase that engineers solve problems. So it, it makes sense that this should fit, you know, really smoothly into the principles of engineering. So it's kind of a counterintuitive that I think sometimes engineering is seen like outside of the sphere of justice and inclusion because the, the principles, like you said, really seem to um, match up really well and build off one another. And I'm glad you said that. And I wrote this in an article a few years ago that we always say that phrase, engineers solve problems, but we leave off people. Engineers solve mm -hmm. problems for people or if they're doing it well, with people. And uh, in order to do that, we have to recognize and value those different pieces and also recognize the disparate outcomes people have just based on their various identities. And so that's, that's a very critical part. And I'll add this one thing, if you don't mind, when you talked about Jedi being separate from engineering, um, I think if we're to move forward and to do things better, we have to recognize that this is a part of good engineering. You cannot say that you're a good engineer if you think that this is something to be relegated to the margins. If you think this, this is something that's feel good as opposed to something that really critically impacts quality of life, public safety, health, and welfare. If you're gonna do good engineering, this has to be embedded in the way you do things. I think that's so true. Going back to what you were talking about a little bit about intersection of these identities, in your, one of your most recent episodes, you discussed how disability, whether it's something physical or maybe a more invisible disability, is often left out of the Jedi conversation. Um, I was so struck by that because I was thinking a lot about the PR I've seen around bringing equity into engineering and how so much of it focuses on like just gender or sometimes on race. And I was hoping you could speak to that a bit why that seems to be the case and some steps we can take to bring more aspects of identity as a whole into the conversation about inclusion. Yeah, I'm glad you brought that up. You know, I think when people look at disability, they look at dis more than they look at ability. And again, I identify as a person with a disability. And uh, there are so many more things that I can do than there are things that I can't do. So one of the things I think gets in the way is the attitude that people bring to the space. There's research that shows that engineering professors and law professors have the worst attitudes of all disciplines when it comes to providing accommodations for students with disabilities, especially invisible disabilities. And a lot of this falls along the li lines of thinking that Oh, well, I give this, if I give this person the accommodation that they need, let's say it's extra time on the test, I'm disadvantaging everybody else. So I'm creating an inequity for everybody else, or they're just doing this to try to gain some kind of unfair advantage or game the system in some way without really recognizing that, no, it's about leveling the playing field. Everybody else is all is already here. And it's not about me having a deficit because of some lack of knowledge or whatever. There is a real barrier that I'm experiencing, whether it's with a neuro difference, whether it's with a physical difference or other difference, but there is a real barrier that 
I need to make sure that I have an accommodation to help me overcome. And so again, when we go to things like uh, designing just different uh, aspects of technology applications and, and hardware and physical infrastructure and all of those things, we have to be able to think about the what, 13 to 14% of the US population who have some form of disability and to be able to include those perspectives in what we do. And I always like to have people think about this. Disability is something that can happen to anybody at any given point in time. Not everybody who has a disability was born with it like I was. So when people have later onsets of disability, if it happened to you, if it happened to your child or someone you love, how limited would you want your world to be? How limited would you want your opportunities to be? And so if we can act with just a bit of empathy to say, this is and when we're talking about faculty members, looking at a student, this is somebody's child. What if this was my child? What would I want the faculty to be doing to make sure that they're getting an equitable and quality education? And same thing in the workforce. So I think if we act with empathy and, and if we can put ourselves in other shoes or imagine our loved ones in the shoes of the people we're working with, then it brings a whole different perspective and hopefully a whole different outcome to the way we approach engineering and engineering education. I think it's so important that you talked about empathy because it really seems like we have the capacity to, you know, make this world a lot more inclusive and like accepting and we just need to act on it and just take those, those, those steps to do that. Yeah. And one of the challenges is there are a lot of people who've never been around people who are different from themselves. And so there's just such a disconnect that it, it's hard to bridge that gap. And one thing I always encourage people to do is expand your network, expand it. You know, if you look around, if everybody that you engage with, the people you study with, the people you hire, uh, the people you go out and hang out with after work or school, if everybody looks like you, thinks like you, acts like you, it lets you know that, hey, I need to, I need to broaden this network a bit. And so all of us need, that's something we all can work on. Yeah, I, I like what you said. I think that really emphasizes the basis of being open-minded instead of having a closed mindset. Absolutely. I think it can be overwhelming sometimes to hear about how much systems of oppression influence so many aspects of the world we live in from the workforce to educational spaces. So even though we're kind of far from the administrative level where a lot of these changes happen, do you have any advice for students hoping to make some positive changes in engineering after listening to this? Absolutely. Really, I look at it like this. Students are the most important people on our campuses. We exist to educate students. And so use your voices. Administrators will listen. We saw a lot of that in the past year with the, the outspokenness of student groups in the face of racial discrimination, anti-Black racism, anti-Asian racism, and faculty heard, administrators heard. And so I say, use your voices. 
but then also you can be exemplars. You can be exemplars for your peers and for your faculty members and administrators who are still trying to figure things out themselves. So within your student organizations and your engagements, you know, adopt equitable practices and make sure your bylaws and, and practices are equitable so that you're not just creating these cliques of folks who advance into leadership. I mentioned earlier about expanding your network, you know, recruit and promote people from diverse identities without it just being tokenism and checking those boxes. You know, just like you think about what skills you want the leaders of your ASCE or other student chapters to have, it doesn't matter. You don't, you don't go to a, a black person and say, well, we want to recruit you in here because you're black. You say, okay, you, you have some great problem solving skills. I saw you work on the concrete canoe team when you were a, a freshman or first year student. And we think it would be great if you could think about this leadership position. So it's just like what you look for in everybody else. I've had conversations with colleagues who are faculty members as they were going through their PhD program, they experienced being told by a faculty advisor that they didn't know how to advise black students. And it was that my colleague said, well, you know, I don't need black advice. I need advice to get through a PhD in computer science. And so people have to get this disconnect, not of by any means advocating some sort of colorblind ideology because that opens up a whole world of inequities that I don't have time to get into today, but to recognize that we're not here because we check a box. I'm not where I am because I'm a black disabled woman. I'm where I am because I bring certain skills. I bring certain capabilities and qualifications that other people don't bring. And so being able to respect and value that and you can do that in your student organizations. When you do community projects, I talked earlier about the importance of engaging the community. So don't show up and say, hey, we're here to save you. It's, hey, how, you know, what do you have going on? Is there something we can help you with? How can we work together on this? And so it's, it's really that, um, that equitable engagement. And then also I know student chapters always invite speakers invite speakers from diverse identities. And when you invite some from minoritized identities, like minorities, women, people with disabilities, LGBTQ identities, intersections of all of that, don't just invite them to give the diversity talks. Invite them to give the technical talks about that latest research they're working on or that latest project or design they've completed. And so those are ways that you can, as student leaders, as student chapters, model behaviors that others who are your peers and also your faculty members and administrators can follow. Wow, that's, that's really motivating because if we, if we always like connect people like in minorities or disabilities to this level of, oh, we want you because you fit this checkbox, it's always it's always limiting them and it could be endowed into their so own self-esteem to where oh i'm only in here because of this reason not because of my skills or my excellence so i really like how you said we can make change with bigger change it always starts and stems from oneself into reaching out into the community into other industries so wow it's really amazing <laughs> thank you so much for the advice um, I'm sure 
to apply it to myself because I do want to work towards a more inclusive environment, and I'm sure everyone does too. It's still kind of sad how this industry is still very dominate, dominated by men though. When I worked as an intern this past summer, the project engineer I worked under was also an African-American woman, and it shook me hearing about her past experiences being discriminated against and undermined for her skills just because of her gender or skin tone. So have you ever faced discrimination like that? And if so, how did it affect you and how did you get through it? I absolutely have. And again, it is important to recognize those intersections. You mentioned your supervisor being a black woman. We have experiences that other women don't have. And it is because of that intersection of race and gender identity. Um, but yes, I have been discriminated against. I have experienced microaggressions. I've experienced macroaggressions. I can run down a list. And then if you want to dive deeper on any one of them, we can talk about it, which is shameful to say. And I say it with a, a laugh now, but it's really sad. Uh, so uh, I'll just think about sort of from early on, even from the time I was a student through being well into my career, I was on a job site as a summer intern uh, and it was a construction job site and I was going to inspect the welds that the contractors were working on before I could introduce myself to the foreman. He looked at me and said, since when do they let secretaries out on the job site? So he looked at me and automatically assumed with my hard hat and my steel-toed boots on that I was a secretary, not an engineer or an engineering student as I was. I, when I joined the faculty of my first university, I had colleagues who tried to convince me that I should be grading their papers. I was the only woman faculty member, the only American-born faculty member, the only African-American faculty member. Um, and yeah, tried to convince me I needed to be grading their papers, told me I should take notes in a meeting because women make better secretaries. Um, Fast forward, there was a job that I was negotiating at one point, a very high level uh, administrative position. I had done my research. I knew what the job was worth. I knew what entry level folks were making. And when I gave them the amount that I was looking for, I was asked on what basis? In other words, you need to justify why you should get that. When I'm looking at folks who are entry level, compared to my 20 years of experience, and there's not much difference in what I'm asking for, but I'm asked to now justify why I deserve that. I've been in a position where I was being considered for another position that, again, I had more than the required qualifications for, and I was flat out told that I needed to prove myself in order to get it. And I'm like, if what, if what you see here is not proof enough, I'm not jumping through any more hoops. So when you ask about responses to things, I think your, your, your responses are different depending on where you are. Um, at the stage I am in my career now, I've, I'm very much open and verbal, uh, like the example I gave about needing to prove myself, I was flat out. I'm not going to jump through any hoops for folks when my credentials already speak volumes. And that's where I was. On the early part of my career, it was, you know, I'm going to go through the reporting channels and report this behavior because it's not acceptable. 
the important thing to think about on the other side is who's receiving the information. And I always tell leaders, it's important to listen because especially when somebody is the only of an identity and when they come to you, if you're just going to tag them with the trope of being an angry black woman, or I've never heard it. Well, nobody else ever complained about that. You have to stop and think, well, maybe you never heard anything about this because I'm the first person who looks like me who's here. So I'm the first person to experience this here. And it should make you listen even more. That's one of the challenges I have in the work that I do uh, in terms of culture and climate is because now, because the ends, the numbers are so small and, you know, engineers tend to default to quantitative analysis. So if we don't have a large enough in to draw generalizable conclusions, we want to dismiss it. But just because I'm the one in that, you know, the one number, the, the, the one woman, the one black person in the department, and I'm sharing this experience, it doesn't invalidate it. And so we have to be more in tune with what's going on. Listen to that critical feedback. Understand people's experiences. Don't further marginalize people by just minimizing their experiences or questioning, oh, did that really happen? Is that what was really said? You know, those things have a, a very detrimental effect. And so, and, and there are people that I mentor who have had experiences and sometimes you stay there and, and you fight through it to make sure that folks who come behind you have a clearer path than you did. And sometimes you remove yourself from the situation to protect yourself from harm. And it's up to individuals to make that judgment of wherever they are, because that's a decision I can't make for anybody else. And I've approached it different ways, depending on the situation that I've found myself in. And you mentioned uh, earlier about people being there or being made to feel like they're in a position because of their identities. I had a colleague tell me once, oh, you have the most secure job here. You're a black woman with a disability. If anybody ever has to go, you'll be the last one, which spoke very clearly. You're here because you checked these three boxes. And, and the, the sad part is I really don't think he meant anything bad by it. But I tell people all the time what your intent is and what the ultimate impact is on the other person can be completely divergent. And so we can't say what we didn't mean to convey or I didn't intend for it to cause harm. We have to own that when we say things and do things, it does cause harm. And we need to be able to mitigate that and fix that on the other end. Wow, that's really incredible. Because I, I feel like if we continue these, like, say, passive aggressive compliments, like back uh, microaggressions, it's just going to make the distance even greater. And it's good to recognize that we're here based on our skills and our disciplines. And if a company says, oh, you have to do more than what is required in our terms to be called a successful like employee, then we shouldn't be breaking our backs just to you know prove to them that we are if we know we are ourselves. So 
Thank you so much for sharing your story and being part of that positive change, whether it be from your experiences in the work industry to even starting your own podcast. Speaking of podcasts, we noticed that you have your own podcast called Engineering Change. Could you go more into that and talk about how you got started and the story behind the name? Yeah, this is kind of like my college experience. It was not on my radar. <laughs> Uh, I had a dear friend who said, you know, you should have a podcast. And I'm like, what? I don't even listen to podcasts. So why would you suggest that I have one? And he said, do you notice every time you go to speak somewhere, you can never get to the next lunch or people come and sit at your table with you because they want to hear more of what you have to say. And I'm like, okay, but I thought that happened with all speakers pretty much. But he just convinced me that I should consider it. And so I did start listening to podcasts. And uh, over several months, I was like, okay, let me see. And I did my research to figure out how uh, and what the best practices are and the best equipment and, and all of that stuff. And so we, we started the podcast. And the name came about because I thought about what it was that I wanted the audience to take away. And one of the soapboxes I'm always on is just what I started off talking about. And that was how people limit uh, efforts to focusing on check boxes that basically uh, leave us at that diversity level that hasn't been gaining any traction practically over the last several decades in engineering. And I said, you know, what if we approach the problem of a lack of diversity, equity, and inclusion in engineering the way we approach any other engineering problem? We do it very intentionally. We, we have a process. It's iterative. We test. We try things. We tweak things. And we find something that works. And so what if we applied that process to what we're trying to achieve in engineering? And so that's where engineering change came from. Yeah, we love to hear that. And just again, for everyone listening, make sure to check out Dr. Pearson's Engineering Change podcast on platforms such as Spotify, Pandora, and more. That's Engineering Change podcast. It's super informative, inspiring, and interesting. I recently listened to your equity and inclusion in organizational leadership episode with Dr. Huel Ducoste, where you both discussed how important it is for companies to build a criteria based on this excellence, instead of just giving out a reward based on diversity. How important is it to work for a company that understands these systematic problems and is working towards fixing it? If this is something that's important to you, it's very important that you're in the right place that places value on that. And so some of the younger people that I mentor have asked me, how do you know whether a company is doing well in these spaces? And I always say, do your homework. Before you go to the interview, well, you're always going to do your homework anyway. Hopefully, you're going to do your homework. So you're going to be on that company's website and trying to learn everything you can about its operation. And start with looking at missions and missions and values statements. Most people have some form of DEI showing up in their mission and values, but to some degree, you can kind of tell if it's just words uh, and, and very performative as opposed to really meaningful by digging more deeply. So what kinds of projects are they engaged in? 
What kind of community-based work are they, are they doing? Take a look at the organizational leadership. What does the representation look like at every level of the organization? Now, of course, we can't fully judge people's identities, gender, race, ethnicity, or otherwise by looking at pictures. But certainly you can sort of see some times when you have patterns that say, you know what, I don't see anybody that, I, that looks like me in the higher levels of this organization. And so that might be a clue that I might struggle progressing through career ranks. Uh, and so those are sorts of things you can look at. When you get to the interview, ask people questions, pay attention to who you're meeting with. Are you connecting with people from different identities? Ask them about what they like about the organization. Ask them why they're there. I always like to ask people, how long have you been here? If people are sticking around 20 and 30 years, which is pretty unheard of in our world today, there must be something worth them sticking around for. So what is it that you like about being here? I always ask people also, what would you change? What's one thing you would change? I ask this when I go out on ABET visits to when I'm talking to students and, and faculty and administrators. If, if you had that wand, what is one thing that you would change? It may not be something that's bad. It may just need some, be something that could be improved. Every place has room for improvement. And if a place ever indicates that they don't, then you know they're lying. So you probably don't want to land there. Uh, but so just, just do your homework and ask the questions. I think it's so important about how you speak about asking those questions, because having just um, been through a career fair, I was on a lot of different companies' websites, and you always see that like our values tabs, but really like checking to see if they have actual projects or actual leadership that backs that up because it's kind of like ubiquitous among all the different like Google searches for everything. Exactly, exactly. And we saw it a lot last year after the murder of George Floyd, everybody put out statements talking about anti-racism, anti-discrimination, and we take a stand and we value this. But now people are being called to, okay, so what are you doing? And if you can't see what's being done, then you know it's just words on a page. Wow, that's, I, I couldn't agree more because a lot of companies just put those words out just so they can have this better superficial re reputation. But if they actually mean it, like it's our responsibility and their responsibility to, for us to research for that, to see if they fit, you know, the requirements of being um, a more inclusive company and the company's responsibility to make sure they're, you know, standing up for what they say they are. Um, it's crazy. How, how, you, how do you manage your time with everything you have going on? <laughs> uh, I don't sleep very much. <laughs> uh, I, I really don't. I actually, since I just joined UT Dallas in August, I put my podcast on hold for a while. I was just starting, I was just hitting my one year anniversary and starting uh, a new season when I got the job offer. And so I was like, okay, I'm going to squeeze out these three episodes. And then I had to just put it on hold for a while. I had a major transition going on with myself, with the relocation and the new job. And also my daughter was going off to college for the first time. And so we're doing all of this uh, coming into the fall 21 semester. And I had to make a decision about what can wait? 
And so um, I said the podcast is something that can wait. We can go back starting in the spring and sort of relaunch after the, the dust is settled here a little bit. And, um, and then, and just kind of go from there. So it's, it's a matter of prioritizing. And I tell people all the time that I'm at the point where I can really be picky about what I work on, whether it's through my company, through the podcast, and I select things based on the priorities that I have. And most of the time it requires me losing sleep. So I ask myself, is this worth me losing sleep over? (laughs) If it's not worth me losing sleep over, I have to say no, because that's what it's going to take to get it done. And, And then there are some things that are worth me losing sleep over that I just don't have the bandwidth to do. And what I do is just try to help people connect with like-minded folks who can do whatever needs to be done and, and be, be able to pass it, pass it along to someone else can, who can step in and help because we, we can't do everything. And, uh, I'm, I'm, I'm getting old now, <laughs> so I'm, I'm feeling things a little bit more. And so I'm trying to be very careful of my time. And the other thing that I'm learning at this stage is it's okay to rest. My best friend told me that one Saturday morning, I was sleeping in until eight o'clock. And I told him I, I felt guilty. And (laughs) I told him I felt guilty. He's like, why? And I'm like, because there's so much that I I need to be doing. And he said, you do know it's okay to do nothing. Sometimes you just need to do nothing. So I'm learning that now. And um, I forced myself to stay in bed this morning until 830. (laughs) I'm so glad you touched on that, like time management and, and rest, because we are in the midst of midterms right now. So I hope all of our listeners are taking notes to take some time for yourself and also like look at your to-do list and see what, what really you want to prioritize. Prioritize and delegate. If there's something somebody else could be doing, especially those of you who are organizational leaders, you don't have to do it all yourself. That's why you have a team. So if there are things that you can delegate to someone else, delegate it and, and free your load. What you don't want to do is burnout. That's true. Uh, And that's physically, that's mentally, you have to take care of your whole self. So take time for you. Yeah, sometimes the best thing to do is to do nothing. Just be mindful, meditate, stay still, just really put yourself into like the present moment. And I think you're doing like, with helping and inspiring others, you're doing a great job because with your podcast, it's not just a one time thing, like it's on a platform where anyone can listen to it. And so even though you might you may not be feeling like you're helping people at this moment, don't worry because a lot of people are probably listening to it right now and just getting inspired from your words. Well, thank you for that, I appreciate it. This is uh, pertaining to civil engineering specifically, but we saw that you are a ASCE fellow. And since we are an ASCE podcast, we were wondering how you got involved with ASCE. And for those of you who aren't a part of it, it's American Society of Civil Engineers. 
Um, how did ASCE venture onward after college in your perspective? And is the culture and atmosphere different compared to an undergraduate experience? Uh, I'll answer the first part first. I got involved with ASCE as an undergraduate. I was a secretary, I believe, in our student chapter at one point. And I was in multiple engineering organizations, including the National Society of Black Engineers. So I always felt like I was doing this balancing act with all of the leadership roles I was trying to carry. Uh, after I graduated, I'll be honest, I did not engage in ASCE for quite some time. When I went back to teach, my uh, university had an ASCE student chapter and they had a faculty advisor that wasn't very active. And the department chair asked me if I would step in as co-advisor, which ended up really with me being the advisor. And that's when I got back involved in ASCE. And at that time, it was just in time for our student chapter's rotation to host the regional conference, which was really interesting. And I love planning events and things like that. So that was just right up my alley. And it was an exciting project to take on with the students. Following that, somehow, I can't remember exactly how, but the uh, chair of the publications committee for our Louisiana section, I don't know if I had submitted an article for our state section magazine or he had reached out for information on our chapter. I really don't remember how we connected, but we connected and just developed a relationship. And he just asked me, hey, you want to be on the publications committee for the section? And I'm like, what does that entail? He said, well, maybe you can help me since you're a faculty advisor. Maybe you can help me round up stories on student chapters. And again, I went into engineering education because of my passion for students and teaching and all of that sort of engagement. So I'm like, count me in. Then he started asking me to go to the section meetings. And I started going to the section meetings. And then the president uh, asked me if I wanted to uh, chair the younger member uh, division for the section. And I'm like, oh, well, that's pretty cool. And they, you know, I was able to create some different initiatives. And then the next thing was, well, do you want to be on the board? You know, it's so it just kind of progressed. Uh, and then I, I ended up moving to Texas after that. And again, I was still an active ASCE member, but I hadn't really gotten into the groove with the with the Dallas or Fort Worth uh, chapters and uh, um, branches rather. And uh, but then there came some opportunities later on where I got involved at the national level. And so it progressed from there. So um, to answer the question about the differences in the uh, in the um, post-graduation experiences and the student experience, to be quite honest, I don't fully remember. <laughs> it's been so long ago. But what I will say is that I really valued the experiences I got as a student chapter leader, because I think they were the foundation of me being a leader, not only in ASCE, but also in academia. And, uh, and so right now with the group, I just came off of being the inaugural chair of Mosaic, which is Members of Society Advancing an Inclusive Culture, which is ASCE's board level body focused on JEDI for the entire civil engineering profession. 
And so one thing that we started initiating uh, in the past year is working with student chapters. So if student chapters want to start JEDI-focused committees or do more projects with uh, JEDI implementation, we've, we've done everything from supporting those student chapters to uh, we just published a best practices resource guide for people who are looking at how to embed JEDI principles into what they're doing. Um, whether it's uh, organizationally or with partnerships or, or with planning events. Um, we rewrote policy statement 417 so that it now is a JEDI policy. We provided input into the revised code of ethics. And so there are just so many great opportunities uh, for leadership within ASCE. And while I took a break, from the time I graduated to the time I rejoined as a professional member, I encourage folks, keep the engagement going uh, once you graduate. Don't, don't have that gap uh, because it's a, a, a lot of places and a lot of ways for you to get involved and to grow in leadership. And ASCE is placing so much emphasis on engaging younger members and we need you. Well, that pretty much wraps up the time we have, but thank you so much again for chatting with us today. Thank you for having me. I, I really have enjoyed it. It has been such an incredible conversation and so incredible to have you on. Make sure to check out again, Dr. Pearson's podcast, the Engineering Change podcast, which will also be linked in the show notes. Yes, it was such an honor to hear your uh, personal and professional journey. I really liked your overall message, which was, you know, we have to solve problems with people for the people where that just not for engineering but just in general any kind of problem in society or within ourselves too so i really learned a lot and i hope our audience had as well yes thank you so much for listening and catch you all in our next episode bye 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 bye